I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Professor Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera, a company that offers online courses to the public through partnerships with leading universities internationally. Coursera was launched in 2012 and reached its first 1 million users faster than Facebook or Twitter. Coursera is one of a number of companies offering massive open online courses, or MOOCs, that had been launched in recent years to address a growing global population and the rising costs of on-campus higher education. Daphne is a professor of computer science at Stanford University. Welcome. Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be here. What are some specific features of a Coursera experience? So the Coursera student experience is an attempt on our part to give to students all over the world an experience that is as close as possible that we can get to being on campus. The course starts on a given day. Every week, the students are responsible for learning some content. There's homework that's due every week, which is graded. And if you don't do your homework, you don't get a grade and you don't pass the course. And then there's a rich social community of students around the course that are working together to help themselves deal with the challenges of this difficult material. What is the the age range of the people enrolled on the system? Um, we have students that are as young as 10 and students that are as old as 90. Um, I got an email from an 86-year-old that tells us that um, she doesn't feel comfortable going to college because uh, people are going to look at her funny. What's this old lady doing in class? And so she um, t- is taking a Coursera course and meets up with a bunch of other octogenarians every week in the public library to do a study group. And how about internationally? You're touching uh, students in in several hundred countries. We're touching students in every single country around the world. I mean, every single country that the State Department defines as a country has Coursera students in it. We have students in... Iran, we have students in Pakistan, we have students in Ghana and Kenya and South Africa, students in Australia, um, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, China, I mean, you name it. So just a couple weeks ago, I got an email from uh, the modern contemporary American poetry professor at Penn who told us about a student from Pakistan who had taken the course remotely and has done so well that it was part of his admissions package to Penn, and now he's coming to study at the University of Pennsylvania. We have a student from Peru who took a bunch of our computer science courses because there weren't a lot of computer science courses available to him in Peru, used that as the basis for his Fulbright application, and is now coming to study in the United States as a Fulbright scholar. You co-founded the company with Professor Andrew Ng, who is also at Stanford. Stanford has a history of computer-assisted learning that, you know, dates back to, I'd say, the 1960s. Can you describe the nature of the computer-assisted learning? Mm Mm-hmm. So Stanford has a very long history of uh, distance learning. It started out, I think, as you said, back in the 60s, where they were filming courses in class and then shipping literal video cassettes to to local industry sites so that students could watch the video cassettes, and then they would mail in their homework, and their graded homework would be mailed back to them. This is how long back this goes. When you say students, these were students actually at local companies in Palo Alto, such as Intel. That's right. These are students who are local or not even local. Some of them were in Oregon, for example. And they were employees of these companies. These were employees of these companies. And Coursera is also videos of the professors of the lectures, but it's much more interactive this time. Well, that's one of the differences. But the other difference is that the lectures are not, by and large, lecture capture of of what happens in a live classroom. These are 
these are videos that are prepared intentionally for online consumption. And that changes the student experience dramatically because once you move away from the constraints of in-class teaching, you have a lot more freedom. So first of all, you don't have to teach at 50-minute segments. You can teach at eight-minute segments that are much better suited to students' attention spans and to the granularity of the topics. Um, you can also do things that are much more creative, like record some stuff in a workshop or out in the field, for example, making things much more alive to students. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Professor Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera, a company that offers university-level online courses to the global public. When was the idea for Coursera hatched with you? If you want to trace my history in Coursera, it actually goes way back before we even thought of Coursera. I've been involved in teaching efforts at Stanford ever since I got there and have been interested in the use of technology in teaching all the way back to 2008 or 9, which is when uh, a group of us were summoned to uh, by Stanford administration to just discuss how students could become more engaged uh, with their instructors at Stanford, how you can create more interaction. Um, about two months after that meeting, I happened to be at a Google faculty summit where they bring faculty from all over the world to discuss ideas, and I was listening to a talk on YouTube, and it occurred to me that this provided a medium by which we could create really high-quality course content that could be presented to students outside the classroom with a lot of additional engagement beyond just the lecture. And then when students came into class in that precious time when the students and the faculty were actually in the same room at the same time, we could actually talk to each other and do stuff together, problem solving, uh, creativity, case studies, things like that that we never have time to do in real classes. And for me, that uh, was the first step that eventually morphed into Coursera a few years after that. Your co-founder Founder, Professor Andrew Ng also came to online uh, education through his own personal experience. What was that briefly? So Andrew, back in 2007, 2008, uh, started a project that was aimed to take some of Stanford's great content and make it available to the many people who are not privileged enough to have access to a Stanford quality education. And so he created a project called Stanford Engineering Everywhere, which took um, 10 of Stanford's most popular engineering classes, um, cleaned them up and put them up on the web for everyone around the world to make use of. Incidentally, SCE, or Stanford Engineering Everywhere, has reached over a million people Mm -hmm. at this point. I think it's that effort combined with some of the ideas that I developed in the context of my class at Stanford, that by combining these different ideas is how we arrived at a lot of the vision behind what turned into Coursera. And that really culminated in the fall of 2011 with the grand experiment that Stanford did in which it launched three courses and in computer science and made them open to everyone around the world for free. We were expecting an enrollment of a few thousand people in these courses. They, they were pretty advanced courses in computer science, but within weeks, each of them had an enrollment of 100,000 students or more. I think that, that that opportunity and the magnitude of it is what caused us to effectively put our respective careers on hold, and in my case, also my family on hold to a certain extent, and really uh, walk into what has turned out to be an incredibly exciting but also time-consuming endeavor. Were you and Andrew friends since you were in the same department? or Actually, Andrew and I had been friends even before he joined Stanford. We even wrote a paper together while I was a very young faculty member at Stanford, and he was still finishing up his PhD at Berkeley. Coursera has partnerships with Stanford, yes, Mm -hmm. and uh, universities ranging from Princeton 
to the University of Pennsylvania to a Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And while Stanford's attitude towards using its content uh, has been one of openness, there has been initial concerns about making the university's content available to the public. Some might feel, why why should we offer content uh, for free while students who attend our university are paying northwards of $40,000 a year? What do you think has made universities comfortable with adopting Coursera as a partner? I think universities are realizing that um, this is a transformation that's coming, and it's coming regardless of whether they engage with this or not. And many universities feel like they would rather be um, helping to steer the train as opposed to sitting on the sidelines to see where it goes. At the same time, I think that most of the universities, I would argue all of the universities that are working with us, realize that their value proposition to their students is and had better be about more than just offering content. If content is about to become free and ubiquitous, then what they would like to do is to open up more time in the curriculum for this active engagement with students, which is really what distinguishes the best universities. Right. It's going to have this change is coming and whether they mm-hmm. want to be uh, friendly to that and part of right. that and active agents rather than right. on the defense is right. what they're up against. Online education, when we started doing this, was something that was looked upon with a certain amount of skepticism and even disdain by most institutions. And now it's something that every institution realizes that they're going to have to embrace in some form or another. So somebody um, told me something the other day that I think is very is very smart. They said that the term blended learning in 10 years is going to sound like the term horseless carriage. <laughs> There's not going to be any other kind. So it's not just launching a company, but you really are pioneering an industry to some extent. I think we are helping to pioneer um, the first major transformation in the landscape of higher education since the um, since the invention of the printing press. If you look at medicine, for example, and you list all of the inventions that occurred in the last 200 years, there's a ton of them. There's antibiotics and orthoscopic surgery and anesthetics. I mean, you can list them for, and you'll have pages. What were the big inventions in, in education and in higher education in the last 200 years? You kind of scratch your head. Whiteboards versus blackboards? PowerPoint? I mean, there really is not very much on that list. You have raised uh, venture capital from Kleiner Perkins and NEA. And while you are a for-profit company, uh, you certainly have a social mission. You are mindfully Coursera.org mm-hmm. versus Coursera.com. Can you elaborate on, on that decision? I think both Andrew and I are educators and went into this with the primary goal of offering education to everyone. Uh, we went into this as a for-profit company, partially because people told us it's uh, if you're going to become sustainable, this is a way of doing it in a disciplined way, um, not starting to rely on, on charitable foundations and encounter donor fatigue, and partly because that was our way of getting enough seed capital to get this going as a, as a viable effort. Now, regarding uh, the business model, how do you see becoming profitable? Right now, you offer courses free. Mm-hmm. Well, we intend to continue offering courses for free because once you start charging money, you block access to this to the people who need it the most, the people who can't afford even $5 or don't in many cases even have a credit card. So how do you make money if you don't charge for access? Well, so we have a couple of different directions that we're pursuing. One of those is charging for credentialing, and we've recently started to offer this notion of an authenticated credential where a student identifies themselves using a government-issued ID 
ID and, and then every time uh, that they submit work, they have a biometric profile that allows us to ensure that they are in fact participating in the learning process. This is not a super costly thing, you know, averages about $50 per course to participate in that. Uh, and we've had quite a good opt-in to that. And it's entirely optional. A second model, which we think is very interesting, is we've had a lot of institutions come to us and say, we would love to be able to offer this course to our students, but we don't have anyone to teach it. Can we take your course, adopt it, wrap around some instructor guidance and facilitation by an instructor who might not be an expert enough to prepare the course, but can still provide help to students as they make their way through it. Um, and all of a sudden, our students are now able to graduate with a much richer um, transcript than they could before. That makes them much more marketable. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Professor Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera. We'll hear more from Professor Kohler coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Professor Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera, a company that offers online courses to the public through partnerships with leading universities internationally. Daphne is a professor of computer science at Stanford University. You're charging a small fee for this uh, verified certificate, uh, but still that precludes a large percent of the population uh, from taking the course. How are you addressing that? So from day one, we told our engineers, this is not going out without a financial aid program. There's a student from Chile, for example, who, uh, for family reasons, wants to study Huntington's disease, wants to do a PhD, and is taking our minds and synapses course so as to be able to uh, uh, improve their application and have a greater chance of being admitted to a PhD program. Uh, we have a student from um, from Egypt, a doctor, who is studying the nutrition class so that she can better serve the people of her community despite the fact that she gets no support from uh, the Ministry of Health in Egypt. Uh, we have a student from Bangladesh who is taking our energy and sustainability course because he realizes only 53% of the citizens of his country have access to electricity, and he's hoping to be able to provide access to electricity to the other half of his country. Inherent in, in, in any companies getting off the ground are some problems early on, whether they're technical glitches or plagiarism in your case, or questions surrounding grading. You have adopted in some circumstances peer grading, where there's more subjectivity around a paper that might be submitted. A student has to grade four other papers, and it's anonymous, so they don't know who the participant is. Can you talk about just the nature of that decision? Um, there are certain types of work that currently computers just can't effectively grade, and that includes designs, for example. It includes um, essay questions that require deep thinking, causal reasoning, and so on. Computers just can't grade that right now, and certainly not provide useful feedback to the students. And since we wanted to support courses that require that kind of work, we put together this peer grading mechanism. Now, I agree that it's something that has to be designed very carefully. You can't just take a lay student who's learning the material for the first time and tell them, 
here's another paper, grade it. Mm -hmm. um, the instructor has to put a lot of thought into creating a what we call a grading rubric, which defines the criteria by which a paper is supposed to be graded and how each of them is to be applied. And those have to be very carefully specified so that the student, even though they're not expert in the material, can take somebody else's paper and say, yes, these three points were made, and yes, these five references were given, and so on, so that they can provide a robust and reproducible grade for the work. It's not perfect, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Excellent. <laughs> exactly so. And actually, let me add to that um, that one of our professors uh, from Princeton, Mitch Denier, actually um, tried out this notion of the perfect being the enemy of the good. He had two of his teaching assistants grade all of the final exams in his sociology course, and it was a hard final exam, and then compared the results from the TA grading to the results of peer grading, and they were very, very well correlated. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a very well-designed grading rubric, and of course, if the grading rubric is not well-designed, this is not going to be as good, but for a well-designed grading rubric, this is actually pretty darn good. You mentioned Professor Mitch Dunier. He's a sociology professor at Princeton, and he had 40,000 students take his course from over 100 countries. Can you provide more texture to his experience? Yeah. So um, so Professor Mitch Dunier taught one of our um, earliest, in fact, arguably our earliest humanities course, because it was a very humanitarian sociology class, not a very quantitative one. And he tried this interesting experiment where, in addition to his weekly lecture materials, he also had a weekly video chat with 10 students selected from different countries around the world. So a student from Nepal, from India, from Georgia, the country, um, from South America. And he says that he learned more from one instance of teaching this class um, in a, to, to a global audience than he learned from teaching it for, uh, for 12 years at Princeton. Because at Princeton, every year there is a great discussion, but it's very similar from year to year because the students have very similar backgrounds. Whereas here, in one... In one go, he got such an amazingly broad range of different perspectives. We alluded to this before, but can you provide more examples of the types of people taking uh, mm -hmm. the Coursera courses, um, you know, the, from the traditional student to the octogenarian? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Sure. So our courses span the range of ages. So I mentioned that we have 10-year-olds. There was uh, our, our, our algebra instructor from UC Irvine said she went into the park one day and there were a group of 10-year-olds playing and they came and said, oh, you're the Coursera lady. It's so great to meet you. We're taking your algebra class. And they all hugged her. So that's one example. Um, we have um, some less happy stories, I guess, of people who don't normally have access. So one example is uh, is a student who is a 17-year-old boy who's severely autistic. His name is Daniel, and he has been in special ed his entire life. I should say he has a speaking vocabulary of about 150 words, but he types on an iPad and is able to communicate very effectively with a very rich vocabulary, and he was the star student in, our, uh, in the University of Pennsylvania Modern Contemporary contemporary American poetry class, and he says this is the first meaningful educational experience that he's had after a life of special ed. What's another example? Yeah. So a couple months ago, we got an email from a woman who happens to be a Stanford alumna and has stage four breast cancer. And um, she says that she can't really leave the house except to go to the hospital to get her chemotherapy and that um, this class is her one window into the outside world. Hmm. Um, we have uh, one of our earliest story is a father of an immune suppressed baby who couldn't leave the house because his baby was getting um, immune uh, treatment 
therapy and he was uh, bone marrow transplant and he was afraid that if he would leave the house he would bring in germs to infect her and so he spent the time while there taking some of our courses um, and and learning more about computer science and ultimately ended up getting an internship in a database company and the strength of that. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera, an online education company launched in April 2012. Its goal is to provide the global public with access to a university-level education that has previously been unavailable on a wide scale. Coursera has partnerships with more than 60 global universities, including Stanford, Northwestern, University of Pennsylvania, and the University of Tokyo. Some people look at the disruption of the online education space and draw the analogy or the parallel to journalism mm-hmm. and newspapers, how you you had uh, all this valuable content that was being undercut uh, when digitalization came. Journalists' uh, skilled work was, was being given away for free. And what do you see as a parallel uh, industry or, or a parallel disruption? So I think that you know, digitalization um, is something that transforms an industry. It, it it creates new leaders and it creates new job categories and opens doors that were closed before. So let's take, for example, electronic commerce. Um, certainly it created a consolidation of a number of key marketplaces like um, Amazon and eBay, um, where a lot of sellers are now congregating together with a lot of buyers to create a marketplace that is actually very efficient. Um, in some ways, it enabled things that were local mom and pop shops that were uh, that had only a very small local audience, if they were efficient and forward thinking, to all of a sudden reach out to, to people around the country. So when we were redoing our kitchen, I ended up buying a bunch of doorknobs from a mom and pop shop in Florida. So I think that this really um, creates opportunities to, uh, as it, as it uh, also transforms the, the entire sector. We're talking about um, disruption, and we're so at the early stages, it's hard to know what the long-term impacts of some mm-hmm. of these are. But we have cell phone usage that is rampant. What changes are going on even biologically with our brain uh, circuitry, you know, as a result of our usage of social media all the time? And I wonder if are the changes in our brains, are if those changes are making online education perhaps uh, maybe not better distribution platforms than traditional education, but have you thought about that marriage? Well, I think that there's a lot of um, changes that are occurring in, in today's young people that make this in many ways, a better dissemination platform for them. For better or worse. For, for, for better or worse. Um, so I think the fact that people are so used to consumption of content via digital media um, is making them much more open to um, getting content in this way. And the fact that we're able to make that content sort of shorter time span, much more intensive, much more interactive, is a lot more commensurate with how they um, uh, react to other content in their lives. At the same time, I think we're also leveraging on the fact that they're used to getting so much of their interaction via digital media. I have two daughters, they're eight and 10. They sit in adjacent rooms texting each other. Mm. I mean, they could play together physically, but they like texting each other. Uh, They like texting me. So I think that people today are actually uh, much more receptive and interested in, in participating with each other via digital media. And we're 
capitalizing on that. You are acquiring a lot of data. You're seeing how people are learning. Um, what are some interesting nuggets of, of information that you've gleaned from the number of people taking mm-hmm. these courses? Whether you've incorporated this feedback mm-hmm. into the company is another matter. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest opportunities that we have here is to take the study of human learning and turn it from an anecdotal science into a data science, because the amount and quality of the data that we're getting is just unbelievable. Um, So you can start to look at, um, for example, which are effective mechanisms for pedagogy in an online format and which aren't. So for example, in collaboration with a group at Stanford, we tested the question of whether showing the instructor's face in the video is a good thing or a bad thing. There's people who say that it distracts from the content and people that say that it humanizes the experience. And I wish I could tell you what worked better, but I can't because the students who weren't seeing the instructor's face complained bitterly that they were unable to focus because it wasn't sufficiently engaging. And so the experiment had to be stopped in the middle. Hmm. So I think that at least here is something where we know what the students think they want. If Mm. it's actually more effective, I don't know, but it's certainly what the students think they want. What's another example? So a very preliminary example that we did is does sending students email um, telling them that a deadline is tomorrow and that they better log on and do their homework, does that increase or decrease student retention? You would think that it would increase student retention. Um, it turns out that the answer is a little bit more nuanced. If you just send students an email telling them that um, their homework is due tomorrow, they feel like they're being nagged and it actually decreases retention. The email needs to be much more carefully constructed uh, with something that tells them not only that their homework due, but they're really doing well in the course, they're 80% along in the course, and (gasps) kind of something that encourages them at the same time. The global footprint of Coursera uh, is vast, but can you break that down? Can you provide some more stories? Uh, When my class was first offered on Coursera, I got an email from a student who lives on the Afghan-Pakistani border in a war zone who told me that he had to leave school after a year to go support his family, but he really wanted to take my class and was wondering if I could offer him a scholarship. And I told him that I didn't need to offer him a scholarship because it was free. And he said, really? So can I take two classes? And I said that, yes, of course he could take two classes. And then he wrote me back to say that he promises to repay my faith in him by going down to the internet cafe in his village, which is the only place that he has an internet connection, so that uh, he will do he would be able to do his homework every week. Mm. So that's um, one example. Uh, we have uh, a student in Kazakhstan who took a number of our courses and ended up on the strength of that being able to get a job at Twitter. In Kazakhstan, he's now working remotely. Um, we have a group of students in uh, in Iran, who, um, you know, there, there's serious network connectivity issues there. Not everyone has access to the internet. So uh, uh, my colleague, Andrew Ng, uh, was told by one student that he was downloading, the student was downloading all of his lectures and burning them on DVDs to distribute them to people around uh, around the country so they would have access to lecture material, for example, even if they didn't have internet access. What about in Ohio mm. or someplace in the United States? Yeah. Um, There's a a group in Ohio that has formed where a wonderful, wonderful woman 
took a group of students who, by and large, had very little um, college education, but had a lot of uh, a lot of motivation. And she put them together in a community center. They met once a week, and they took the uh, University of Virginia Darden course and Grow to Greatness. And she sent me a picture of of the group. And you know, it's people by and large in their forties who've had a very difficult life. They work all the time, and yet they carve time out of their schedule to try and, and learn something new and become and have a better life as a consequence of that. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Professor Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera, a company that offers university-level online courses to the global public. Coursera is one of a number of companies offering massive open online courses, or MOOCs, that had been launched in recent years to address a growing global population and the rising costs of on-campus higher education. You are from Israel, and you come from a family of academics. Your father was a botanist, and your mother taught English as a second language. I'm kind of curious about your father's botany. Do you have an interest in botany? Uh, no, I don't. I I think my father was disappointed that neither of his children expressed an interest in botany. But um, interestingly, my father's story is that he really wanted to be an engineer. Uh, and he even started out studying to be an engineer, but he was told at the time Israel is a very young country that the thing Israel needed most was not engineers, but rather agriculture. So he went from being an engineer to being um, to working in botany, which is the basis for Israeli agriculture. Um, but I think throughout his life, he was a bit of a frustrated engineer, and the part that he enjoyed as much as anything was building all sorts of cool measurement devices mm-hmm. uh, for his plants. And so I think that in retrospect, my father and I had a lot more parallels than our different paths in life suggested. Right. Uh, right. Israel, obviously,'s land is quite arid, and they've had to be very resourceful in growing its its food. And That's right. But I think the funny part is that now, of course, Israel's biggest industry is, in fact, its engineering and high-tech industry, and my father was just born at the wrong time. Did you serve in the Israeli army? Yes, I did. I was, um, I was a, a lieutenant in military intelligence. This was in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, or yes. Did you read Startup Nation and how Israel is perhaps is more entrepreneurial because of the military experience that they have? Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, Israel is more entrepreneurial because of the military um, experience. I think it uh, it takes young people and puts them into a position where they have a really significant mission that they're trying to live up to. It's resource constrained, and you're supposed to make do with what's available. You take a person, you say, you have to do this. There isn't much money. There isn't a lot of equipment for you to do it with, but do it anyway. What's an example of that resourcefulness? (laughs) Uh, The examples that I know are all classified. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You are the Rajiv Motwani Professor of Computer Science at Stanford, and Rajiv was an advisor to a number of startups in Silicon Valley, including uh, Google. Actually, uh, Google endowed 
this professorship in Dauchir. after um, Professor Matwani died. Did you have interactions with Professor Matwani when you were? Uh, Professor Matwani was actually on the faculty at Stanford when I joined as a graduate student back in 1989. I, when I came back to Stanford as faculty back in 95, we were actually in that same research group from which Larry Page and Sergey Brin emerged and uh, created Google. It was part of the digital libraries group at Stanford, and a lot of the early discussions around how to rank web pages occurred in the context of that group. So I've uh, known Larry and Sergey since they were back when they were still graduate students at Stanford. Um, uh, Rajiv was a tremendously gifted individual and was, I think, one of his greatest strengths was his ability to bridge the theory and the practice. I think that that was a part of his ability to help guide people like Larry and Sergey into uh, areas that would make so much impact. And the chair that is endowed in his name is intended uh, to be for people who similarly bridge between theory and, and, and practice. And I'm very privileged to be able to hold that chair. It's a real honor. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. My guest has been Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera. Coming up, we'll meet Mario Schlosser, co-founder of Oscar. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>